Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to Green Left Radio. And Ewan is back on deck on panel today. Welcome back, Ewan. You. <laughs> Thank you, Lali. It's, it's been a bit of a break. Yes, <laughs> excuse I, yeah. the pun. <laughs> yes, he broke his foot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, All right. Not really that funny. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't when he was in pain, I guess. All right. We'll go to the news. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Uh do the uh, news articles and then um, we'll have an interview in the second half uh, with uh, John Rainford on the Port Cundle dispute uh, with Blue Scope Steel. Okay, I'll start off with the TPP, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, so-called, partnership between the rich, between the large companies, basically. Um, Duncan uh, Roden has... Roden? Roden? Oh, God, that sounds awful, doesn't it? Roden. Roden. <laughs> it doesn't sound right to me. Um, has written this extensive article on the details of the Trans-Pacific um, Partnership. It's really interesting. Um, I guess most people would know this has been around, and I don't know how many people know that there are 12 countries who have signed up to this. Uh, in the Pacific Rim, the U.S., Australia, Singapore, New Zealand, Chile, Brunei, Canada, Malaysia, Mexico, Peru, Vietnam, and Japan. And it's it's going to bound together, I guess, 40% of the global GDP. Um, details of the negoci- negotiations, as people know, um, has been kept very secret. And that tells loads about transparency, which they all carry on about, but we never get it in the end. But it's interesting to note that the Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter, in the U.S., has said this, and it, it, it just highlights the um, importance of TPP to the large companies. He said this. In fact, you may not expect to hear this from a Secretary of Defense, but in terms of our rebalance in the broadest sense, passing TPP is an important is as important to me as another aircraft carrier. That is how important they consider TPP to be. It's just atrocious because what will happen is uh, most uh, of the small farmers will lose big time. The it'll be like the, the elimination of protection for Mexican agriculture will mean that in the heavily subsidized U.S. agribusiness will be able to in, were able to decimate the Mexican comp- competitors. And this was another agreement along the same grain as TPP called NAFTA that is made between the U.S. and the um, uh, Latin American countries, some of the Latin American countries. So the Mexican farmers have been decimated. Uh, mass em- mass em- unemployment in Mexico, hence the refugee exodus to the U.S., also drove down wages, leading the shift of manufacturing history from the U.S. to Mexico. 
And it is this reason why the Democratic presidential hopeful Hillary Clinton has jumped ship. He's, she's now opposed to the TPP. I think part of that is because Bernie Sanders is taking the, the, the lead in driving the opposition to the TPP. It also means that every sector of our life is affected. We will pay more for everything from medicine to the, 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 in, the private property not private property, intelligent property of... Intellectual property. Intellectual property. <laughs> didn't mm. quite get to my intellect there. It's also being lost because of this. So we've got horrible stuff and there's activity around that we'll announce later. Yeah, I, th- I think that um, statement, as important as an aircraft carrier, I mean, it just strikes me as... Um, yeah, when the... Was it in the 1800s when the US um, government sent the Navy into force the Japanese to open its market... To you, know, or to you know, to U.S. capitalism. It's just know, an apt statement. Yeah. Next news. All right. Uh, foreign intervention worsens crisis in Syria. Russia. Uh, an article in the Green Left Weekly by Tony Iltis. Russia followed the lead of the Western powers on uh, September 30th and began direct military intervention in Syria, um, targeting the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Russia's campaign aimed to shore up the beleaguered regime of Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad will target uh, al-Qaeda-affiliated Nursa Front and other armed groups fighting the dictatorship. Nusra. 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 Beg your pardon, comrade. I tell you, these Aussies can't pronounce any foreign word properly. (laughs) This makes Russia's uh, entry into the conflict a double-edged sword for the YPG and YP- YPJ. Mm. In an October 8 interview with Al Monitor, Salah Muslim, is that correct, comrades? That's fine. <laughs> Co-chair of the Rojava-based Democratic Union Party said Rojava revolutionary forces saw Russia as a counterweight to Turkey, but Russia's alliance with Assad problematic. Ilham El- Ahmed, a senior member of the PYD, told Al Monitor, Russia says it wants to work with us, a good step for the fight against terrorism on the one hand, uh, but it is empowering the Assad regime, which is a bad point. So, yep. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's interesting also to perhaps tell the listeners the YPG is also the Kurdish um, women's militia. And um, the Kurds find the intervention of uh, Russia and the US an uh, enormous problem. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, it's on the one hand, it's you know, ha- you know using the situation to, I guess, further their own, you know, uh, fight for self-determination and especially against ISIS. But again, on the other hand, on, you know, you've got Russia, which is supporting uh, Assad, which essentially do, you know, wants to do away with the Kurds. That's it, do, right. it doesn't want the Kurdish... It doesn't want Kurdish autonomy. It doesn't want Rojava. Um, so, but it's, I guess, I suppose from the Kurdish perspective, it's how can we you know, best make use of the, that force while it's there? You know, if they're going to be dropping bombs on ISIS, you know, may as well say, well... You know, drop bombs over there rather than on top of us. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of you know bickering between the US and and Russia after the uh, the US actually agreed to uh, a plan with Russia about uh, bombing. So I don't see how bombing is going to solve any bloody thing. We've got m- thousands and thousands of refugees running away from this, and they complain about refugees coming to their country. I mean, where's the logic? It's just hopeless. Well, I, I think it's. Uh Dual, you know, it's it's competing imperialist powers fighting right. for control over a strategically uh, important region, which is the the Middle East, where which is the world's largest oil producing region. Yeah. Well, since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. has had free reign to do that sort of thing, 
and now Russia is emboldened to to once again sort of play that sort of uh, uh, struggle that we, that we haven't really seen since the Cold War. Well, also worthy of note is uh, there's uh, Tartus in Syria, which is the only remaining Russian naval base outside of Russia, which giving the Russian Navy access to the Mediterranean. So there's a, That's right. there's a, there's a broader strategic... You know, for Russia, there's a you know, militaristic sort of strategic sort of... Uh, issue here for them. So it's it's yeah. not out of the kindness of their hearts, you know. Of course, of course. <laughs> Okay, I thought I'll bring some bad news to everybody. <laughs> it's early in the morning. It's about the Gulf Stream failing. It's about climate change. Mm. Um, Kathy Fairfax writes this, and it's, it's, it's you know, just depressing. Um, while the whole globe from polar regions to the equator has experienced record-breaking high temperatures. A small part of the Earth has experienced the opposite. Uh, in September, the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, announced that the first eight months of 2015 were the hottest ever recorded in the 135 years since records have been capped. So that's pretty frightening. Um, climate models have predicted a cooling ex- in exactly this area when the Gulf Stream system weakens since the 80s. Science- scientists have been concerned that the global warming could cause the showing of slowing of the planet's most important oceanic um, circulation system. So the problem here is that you know, this sort of climatic changes are going to affect food production, and pe- th- there's still not the discussion around the vital things in life in relation to climate change. And that's what the most worrying thing about this is. Um, the, um, what is it called? The AMOC, which is Atlantic uh, Meridional Overturning Circulation. It's called AMOC. Um, it's, it says, as the article by Stefan Ramstford and colleagues in the Nash- Nature Climate Change on AMOC, intensity over the past one thousand and one hundred years showed that it does not fluctuate naturally and the weakness of the flow after 1975 is unique in more than a a thousand years this suggests that the weakness of the flow is the result of global warming so more and more and more scientific data is coming out and our politicians really don't give us stuff it's amazing as well just inside of all this evidence, the pe- amount of people who are still arguing about whether climate change is even a problem at all. You, you know, like we... It, it's Like Malcolm Turnbull. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's absurd. You know, like we're constantly saying, like, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. And all this time, we're putting off actually doing something about it and addressing the problems. That's right. We're going the opposite direction. You know, mm. approve a new coal loader in Newcastle. Approve this massive car right. mine. And you know all about Queensland. that. Yes, approve I know that Adani thing is yeah. just absolutely like a bomb, isn't it? It's like that. I mean, I guess what is it? Was it Peter Dutton who made the joke about the? Uh, Pacific Islanders. Pacific Islanders. I yes. mean, it's like they won't believe. It's like that. No one. It seems sometimes that the at the very least the politicians and the business class won't actually believe. Well, won't even believe that there's a problem until the water's lapping at the door, their own doorsteps. I know. Now, Michael Mann, one of the authors of um, Greenland's ice is melting fast. He, he's one of the authors of the from the scientific magazine. He says this: the precise consequence of an ongoing AMOC sh- slowdown 
are hard to predict. However, man has warned that it could reduce global food security by withholding deep-sea nutrients from fisheries and food chains that flourish in shallow Atlantic Ocean depths. Without the MOC to carry carry heat wave from the tropics and redistribute it, man said northern hemisphere winters could become harsher, although not to the extent depicted in the Hollywood film Day After Tomorrow. He said that the hurricanes and other storms could become more common, it's already becoming more common, providing the heat with an alternative pathway along which it can travel. If you shut down this mode of ocean ocean circulation, you're denying the climate system one of its modes of heat transport. So it's it's just trying to understand the nitty-gritty of it. Um, the, the dangerous pathway we are taking in relation to responding to the problems in carbon emission and so on, it's appalling. We're just not taking it seriously enough. At least the politicians. We are. I think the people are, and, and definitely Green Left Weekly is, and that's why we call it Green Left Weekly. But the politicians don't care. Mm-hmm. And it's appalling, absolutely appalling. You want to say something, Ewan? Yeah, it's really like uh, we've just had, uh, in Australia-wide, we've had the hottest October ever on record. That's right. It's scary, isn't it? Yeah. I put some aircon in my room, in my house uh, last <laughs> week, but I thought, oh, I, I'm going to die in this heat. You know, it's horrible. <laughs> I open the windows and cool the planet down. Just turn your air conditioning on. But the the the, the, the weather outside is it's steaming hot. You know, oh, it kills you. And if you're sweaty like me with, in the menopausal range, you're stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually a serious issue is that people, it's not long before people start actually dying from mass heat waves. That's right. Like that's, it's, it, it really comes down to that. Yeah. It can and you get heat strokes too. Yeah. It's a problem. Yeah, and you can't live on a dead planet. Okay, uh, we'll go to a mid-row now and then we'll come back with the interview with John Rainford. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday Morning Breakfast Show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au. Or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Come along to a fundraising trivia night organised by the North Carlton Railway Neighbourhood House. Support your public housing neighbours and learn more about the struggle to maintain public housing in public hands. It's all happening on Saturday, October 31, from 7 to 11pm at St Michael's Church Hall, 14 McElwraith Street, Prince's Hill. Bring your own food and drink and join the fun. Tickets are only $25 with discounts available for a table of eight. All proceeds go towards young people and families living in public housing in our community. For more information, call 9380 6654. This event is organised with the help of Friends of Public Housing Victoria, proud 3CR supporters. Alrighty, welcome back to Green Left Radio on 3CR. Uh, This is Zane, and we've just got some community announcements, activist announcements before we go to an interview. Uh, There's a film screening coming up on the Friday tonight uh, at 7.30pm. 
Uh, that is at ACME, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image at Fed Square in the city. Um, an explosive and timely documentary that examines the ever-increasing erosion of privacy and the government's growing and alarming powers to monitor and record our every move. Uh, hold up in a Hong Kong hotel room with Edward Snowden, filmmaker Laura Poitras cap- captures the sensational now public series of events as they unfold in real time. So uh, yeah, that's tonight at Acme at Fed Square. Uh, tomorrow night at 8pm, uh, Russell Brand is doing a gig at Rod Laver Arena, uh, True World Order, it's called. Um, there's the fundraiser run for refugees that's a uh, Asylum Seeker Resource Centre uh, annual fundraiser run as part of the Melbourne Marathon. That is happening... Uh, at 10 a.m. on Sunday, check out the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre's website for details about that. Uh, and Monday, the 19th of October at 6:30, what will the new government leadership mean for the climate movement? Um, so that's happening. It's followed by the regular Climate Action Moreland meeting with a cheap meal available, BYO alcohol. That's at Sate Anika. Uh, at 140 Ligon Street, Brunswick. So that's Monday night at 6.30, Climb Action Moreland. And Fergal, you had an announcement as well. I do. On the 30th of October, which is a fortnight from now, so everyone's got time to prepare, the Socialist Alliance is is, um, hosting a Red Cinema event, doing a screening of the documentary film No Three Steps to Heaven, which is a documentary about the YPG and the YPJ. From Kurdistan. From Kurdistan, that's right, in respect to the Rojava Revolution um, at the Resistance Centre on Swanson Street. So Uh I'll make another announcement closer to the date just to remind everybody. And, yeah, I should mention uh, sincere condolences to all uh, left-wing Turkish and and Kurdish uh, comrades who've had... Uh, friends, comrades, and family members injured and they were killed in this uh, bombing in, in Ankara last week, which that's, is uh, quite terrible. horrific. And uh, we'll have someone speaking next week, hopefully, uh, about their political situation in Turkey. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, on the line today, we have John Rainford, who is a former trade union organiser, author, and Socialist Alliance member from Wollongong. Welcome, John. G'day, Zane. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Um, now, John, Australia's last remaining steelworks is up your way at Port Kembla. It's operated by a BHP Billiton subsidiary, Blue Scope Steel. Um, now, can you paint a picture for our listeners of the situation with the steelworks and the workers? Yes, indeed. Um, the um, the steelworks has been in trouble for, for quite some time, Um Back in uh, 2009, uh, it was exporting 50% of its steel production um, on the back of um, a blast furnace efficiency that was well above world average. But by 2011, it closed down uh, one of its uh, two blast furnaces and retreated from the export market um, with the loss of uh, of a 1,000 jobs. Hmm. And currently... Um, Blue Scope's total raw steel output capacity from Port Canberra is 2.6 million tonnes a year, which is presently about uh, 500,000 tonnes surplus to its present domestic market sales. And when this surplus is um, 
exported uh, to a global market, uh, it loses uh, about $100 million a year. Um, and at the moment, um, the whole world steel market uh, is glutted um, because of excess production in, uh, in China, and their exports uh, are estimated to top more than 100 million tonnes this year. So that's had the effect uh, in Europe and the US of uh, making steelworks uneconomical, and uh, they've been closed down. Uh, so we've got the, the situation now where at Port Kembla, um, there is that 500,000 tonne surplus. And also over the next two years, as the automotive industry uh, is wound down, um, they'll have another 80,000 uh, tonnes of automotive steel, which is um, access to capacity. So uh, basically in that situation, the, um, the company... Uh, has asked the main union there, the AWU, to agree to 500 workers being retrenched or the steel works will be shut down with the loss of 5,000 jobs. Yeah, right. Um, now, how has the, um, how's the union, how do you think the union's handled the situation there? I understand there was a deal sort of made a couple, about a week ago, week and a half ago. Yeah, it was uh, it was last week. Um, what had happened is that um, the company didn't flag this stuff at all until uh, the enterprise bargaining um, negotiations uh, uh, began. And when that happened, um, uh, it, there was that ultimatum about the uh, jobs. Um, but they also wanted the workers to agree to a three-year enterprise agreement with no wage increases and the suspension of an existing bonus scheme. Now, the unions uh, responded to that with a proposal um, that both the New South Wales and federal governments uh, introduced legislation making it mandatory that 50% of Australian steel be used on all domestic infrastructure projects in order to soak up this surplus capacity. But that was uh, rejected, so... Uh, the workers were left with a very, very difficult decision. And in fact, uh, at the meeting, the union quite correctly described the company's proposal as a filthy, rotten package um, that uh, actually asked workers to vote for it, otherwise it's see you um, in the dole queue. Um, so that's uh, essentially what happened. Um, but even given that, uh, it's not certain that uh, the steelworks will be saved because... Uh, um, that will be um, that decision will actually be made um, in November, when uh, Blue Scope um, has its uh, annual general meeting, um, and the company also wants the state government uh, to relieve it uh, of the burden of paying 28 million dollars in payroll tax and another five million in compliance costs associated with the Environmental Protection Agency and Work Cover. So these things are presumably still being discussed with state and federal government at the moment. Um, but the, the chief executive um, has said that um, although he can't guarantee that the annual general meeting will um, will agree to uh, keep the steelworks open, hmm. um, it, and- it was the vote that uh, uh, he said um, was gave him a lot of confidence that uh, they'll get... Um, the subsidies that they want and so on. Hmm. Now, 
Blue Scope Steel, of course, is a subsidiary of BHP Billiton. The Port Kembla Steelworks used to just be directly owned by BHP Billiton, same as the Newcastle Steelworks, and that, those two steelworks were instrumental to building the fortunes of that corporation. It seems a bit sus how BHP have got a tendency to spin off little arms of what they do into little firewalled um, entities like, like Blue Scope. Yes, the um, about a decade ago now, uh, Blue Scope, uh, the, the Port Kembla Steelworks, Blue Scope, uh, was spun off or demerged from the parent company, uh, BHP Billiton. Um, and that happened at a time when the um, China was becoming a, a serious uh, competitive uh, threat. Um so I think that's really where where the rot set in because uh, the steelworks would have been much better positioned uh, to meet international uh, competition as part of an integrated company producing both the iron ore and the coking coal for steelmaking rather than as a standalone steelmaker. So I think the rot really started there. Um, and um, the BHP Billiton, when it did the merger, um, Blue Scope. Blue Scope was immediately in trouble, yet they were getting um, the benefit of um, uh, increased iron ore uh, sales and coking coal sales to uh, to, to China, China. <laughs> and elsewhere. Mm. So, you know, to make the were, cheap skill that is un- undermining Blue Scope. <laughs> indeed, precisely so. So you've got that you know circular thing where. Um, yeah, the um, the future. Um, uh, even if it uh, if it is uh, kept open uh, for the next two or three years, um, it's still going to be, I think, a very fine balancing act to be able to compete, and uh, its capacity to compete um, has actually been neutered by uh, BHP Billiton, um, and BHP Billiton, uh, by the way, is one of the companies. Uh, that uses Singapore as a uh, um, as a way in which to uh, to set up um, uh, tax avoidance, uh, and that comes to an estimated um, not just with the BHP Billiton but with other companies uh, seven billion dollars a year. So you know, if there needed to be um, money um, invested in, let's say, uh, producing uh, constructing a coal generation plant. Uh, at the steelworks, which would uh, basically be the the largest carbon abatement project in uh, in the country's history. And yeah, tell us provide... a bit about that, like, just quickly. We've got to finish up soon, but if, if yeah, you just... yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, look, back in two thousand and nine, the secretary of the Labor Council here, Arthur Rorris, was mm. responsible for initiating a research project which proposed uh, an action plan for creating green jobs uh, in the in the region. Mm. And one of the proposals that was being discussed was the construction of a coal generation plant, um, which would have created an estimated 2,000 jobs over a three-year construction phase. But more importantly, uh, as I say, would have been the largest carbon abatement uh, project in the in the country. Now it never happened because Blue Scope said they couldn't afford the one billion dollar price tag at the time, um, and that's the point. Blue Scope couldn't afford it. BHP Billiton certainly could, and BHP Billiton could certainly pay for it mm. uh, if the government done something about uh, them paying their 
uh, the correct the tax uh, um, bills. Mm. Nationalise a lot of them, that's what I say. I reckon too. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well said, Fergal. Yeah. Well, that was actually a proposal that was put uh, by the uh, by one of the Greens uh, MPs in uh, in New South Wales. Oh, my God, um, how radical. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It is um, but it, it wasn't picked up uh, anywhere, unfortunately. Um, oh, but yes, the, the, there is that case to be made out. Uh, and, you know, if we're going to subsidise it, well, uh, you know, if the taxpayers are going to subsidise it, why wouldn't the taxpayers own it? Agreed, John, mm-hmm. agreed. Okay. Right. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there. But uh, thank you very much for uh, for joining us this morning, John. Good on you. Thanks very much. Thanks, John. Bye. Thanks, John. See ya. Okay. End of the show. Yeah, that's it for... Yeah, that's it for today's show. Uh, let thank Lali, Fergal, and Zane. Cheers, Uwe. Thank you. Okay, and, bye, um, listeners. Today's show will be available on podcast today, sometime, and we'll look. Uh, stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions, and we'll be in 